Evening, church. Good to see you this evening, and it's good to be here at Central, and we've looked forward uh, to being here. I've, uh, I've just been praying about it, and, and I just want to say, you know, I pastored for a number of years, so I know exactly how much work goes into something like this. So thank you, church, for all that you've done and the preparation and the prayer, and uh, thank you for the comfortable room and the good meal tonight. And uh, I'm looking forward to God doing something special this week. Amen? Amen. And I trust you are too. And uh, I'm looking forward to meeting all of you and getting a chance to get to know you a little bit better. I've met a few of you tonight and uh, I want to encourage you to come by and meet my wife and I. Uh, Jennifer was a missionary in Taiwan for about 13 and a half years. And uh, she was uh, there with her first husband, Troy. Troy went to be with the Lord several years ago. And uh, so she speaks Mandarin Chinese. So if you speak Mandarin tonight, she'll... uh, of course, she also speaks English, amen. But uh, she'd love to speak some Mandarin with you tonight and uh, if you come by the table. And uh, she'd like to share probably some stories about Taiwan as well. But uh, I lost my first wife, Judy, to cancer as I was planting churches and pastoring churches a number of years ago. So God put Jennifer and I together in 2001. And she had already come back from Taiwan and she was the mission nurse at Baptist International Missions. And I came into a meeting pastor as a pastor to BIMI, and uh, I met a man by the name of John Bales who introduced me uh, to Jennifer. Now, he didn't really introduce me. Uh, he, gave her, he gave me her phone number and her name. Now, now you got to get the picture. I'd been married for 26 years. How do you start this courtship process? I mean, I, I would look at the phone, and the phone would just absolutely scare me to death. So one day I worked up the courage to call her, and we must have talked an hour on the phone, and she'll probably share some of that with the ladies. But I got off the phone, and I called John Bales. I said, John, how am I supposed to meet this lady? She's 600 miles away. How am I supposed to? He said, well, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I said, Yes. And he said, well, she's a missionary, isn't she? And I said, yes. Well, have her in for a meeting. And that's exactly what I did. Amen? (laughs) And the rest is history. So that's uh, that's our story tonight. Um, I I love America tonight. Don't you love America tonight? I I love this country. I I was talking to pastor this afternoon. I I don't make any apologies about loving America. I absolutely, positively love America. Uh, This is my homeland. Hey, I was born here. Uh, Do I love everything going on in America? No, I don't. I certainly don't love everything that's that's going on. But, uh, boy, my my desire tonight is to see America reached with the gospel. I want to share a thought with you tonight. I'm going to use David's presentation as a springboard. But I want to share this thought with you tonight. And uh, if you want to take your Bible. How many have a Bible with you tonight? I know some people... A lot of people are still carrying their Bibles here. Hold them up real high. Amen. Amen. Now turn them sideways so I can see how much you're reading them. (laughs) Amen. Um, I want you to turn to Acts tonight, the book of Acts tonight. It's Wednesday night. Let's have a Bible study. Amen. (laughs) Book of Acts tonight. I I want you to think about this tonight as we start this evening. And I'll read one verse, we'll pray, and then we'll we'll go through uh, several portions of Scripture here tonight. I want you to think about this tonight as we start the, the week. We can increase our missionary force worldwide by increasing our missionary source. And our missionary source, of course, are 
churches just like Central Baptist Church. Think about that a moment. We can increase our missionary force worldwide by increasing our missionary source. And that's what this emphasis and this week is all about. It's all about reaching America with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's also about getting churches planted and started. You know, when you think about church planting, I, I tell churches this all the time, one of the best investments, one of the best investments that a church can make with their mission dollar is in church planting because every one of those churches that gets started will be supporting missionaries. And so your dollar is really going to be multiplied tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold. So think about this tonight. We can increase our missionary force worldwide by increasing our missionary source. I want to share a verse tonight from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 as we do an expository message tonight all the way through the book of Acts. No, we're not going to do that tonight. Okay, we can't do that tonight. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Let's pray together. Father, tonight, as we gather here with your people on this Wednesday evening, this first night of the 2022 Missions Conference here at Central Baptist Church, we pray, dear Lord, that you'd uh, help us tonight to set aside maybe the cares of the day, maybe the things that we have to do tomorrow. And Father, help us to zero in tonight on your word. Lord, I, I know that your people would not be here tonight if they didn't love you. And if they didn't love your word, I know they do. And I know they love missions tonight. This church has a rich, such a rich history. And I thank you for that, of missions and, and worldwide evangelization. But this week, Lord, as we think about America, we think about our homeland, Lord, I, I pray that you'd give us a, a, a real burning desire to, to see our neighbors in this nation and indeed the world reached with the gospel. Father, help us in this hour. We need your help desperately. We are a needy people tonight in need of you. And Lord, this country needs you tonight. And I pray that the end result, at the end of the week, when the last song has been sung and the, the last amen has been said, that Lord, that, uh, that this week would make the difference for hundreds, yea, thousands, who will be reached on our shores. And in turn, Lord, those churches will reach those people who will eventually be involved in this matter of worldwide evangelization. Father, help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name now. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. When I read that verse, my first question is, what did Jesus begin to do? What did Jesus begin to teach? And the Acts of the Apostles, as you well know, is a record of the actions of the sent ones. It's a record, really, of what the sent ones did after Jesus started what he started and stated what he stated while he walked on this earth. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so what we have in the book of Acts is a continuation then of what Jesus stated and what he had started as he was here upon this earth. 
Uh, as, as you think about the book of Acts, the first church, of course, that we read about or we begin to study is, is the church at Jerusalem. Do you ever inject yourself into the scriptures and, and wonder what it must have been like to be there? I oftentimes wonder what it would have been like to be a part of the church at Jerusalem. Some historians, some commentaries I've read actually say that the church at Jerusalem grew to some 30,000 members. It must have been an exciting place to be. I mean, how would you like to be in that service where Ananias brought his offering? I mean, lied to the Holy Spirit, dropped dead. And then I imagine preacher, one of the apostles, standing up after all that takes place and saying, hey, folks, be back here tonight. His wife will be here this evening, you know. <laughs> how would you like to go to a service where they baptized 3,000 people? Good grief. You'd have to bring a lunch. Maybe two lunches. I don't know. And, and honestly, I had the great privilege one time in my ministry to baptize 17 people at one time, and I was wore out. I can't imagine what it would be like to baptize 3,000 people. But nevertheless, what did they have an opportunity to see? What did they have an opportunity to be a part of? Well, number one, they had an opportunity to see people saved. Isn't it wonderful when people come to the realization that they're lost and they need a Savior and that their only hope is Jesus Christ? It's a wonderful thing when people walk through the doors of this church or maybe people you've ministered to. It's a wonderful thing when they come to that realization that they're lost and they need Jesus and they put their faith and trust in the only one that will save them, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. We were in Norcross, Georgia one Sunday morning. I'll never forget this. A young man by the name of Michael came up to my table and uh, I, I'd been preaching all morning and, and teaching in the Sunday school hour and he came up to my table. The first thing he said in Norcross, Georgia, he said, he said, I'd like to do something for God. Well, that got my attention immediately. I began to talk to Michael, and I, I asked him, I said, uh, how long have you been coming to the church? Well, I've been coming about three weeks. And all of a sudden, I thought, wait a minute, I better stop and, and find out if, if this guy is really saved or not. So I said, Michael, I said, do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Are you 100% are you sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior? And he said, uh, not, not for sure. And I said, listen, before you can ever do anything for God, you've got to know God. And the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. So why don't we go into the auditorium? And, and I was so glad that he was able to call on the name of the Lord to save him. And the next day we, uh, we called the pastor. I had to go to another church that night. And I called the pastor and I said, well, did he come to services last night? Did Michael come? He said, oh, yeah. He said he came right down front, told everybody he's been, he's been saved and he said, we're going to baptize him. And he said, you know what? We're going to have to find something for him to do. Now, that's how it ought to be. Amen? Amen? That's how it ought to be. They had a chance to see people saved. They had a chance to see people baptized. But they also had an opportunity to see churches started. They had an opportunity to see those chur churches started and established. Now, um, I want you to look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 tonight. David referred to it in his presentation tonight. We're going to kind of pick this apart. We're going to do a little Bible study tonight, okay? There's three key words in that passage tonight. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And of course, the Lord would give what? The Great Commission five times in the New Testament, right? Once at the end of the four Gospels and here at the beginning of the book of Acts. It's the marching orders for the church, right? I want you to notice this passage real quickly here. I think there's three key words that are really something we need maybe to look at tonight and underline and underscore. That first key word there 
In Acts chapter 8, or chapter 1 here, verse 8, would be the word power. The word power. That, that's a key word there in that passage. One of the things that scares me the most in my ministry sometimes is when I get to thinking that I can do something with a little bit of God's help. Jesus has a completely different perspective on that, doesn't he? He said, without me, ye can do nothing. You know, God's work, the matter of faith promise giving and, and uh, winning souls and, and reaching America and, and different people groups around the world, planting churches, giving to missions, praying for missionaries, it, 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 it must be done. It has to be done. It must be done in the power of the living God. There can be no lasting decisions, salvation decisions, without God's power. There, there can be no genuine discipleship without the power of God. Oh, as I travel across America, ladies and gentlemen, we just don't need a little rattle in this hour. We need a whole absurgence of Holy Spirit power in this hour. God, help us in this hour to realize that this work cannot be done. It won't be done. It cannot be done in human form. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Not by might, that means physical strength, nor by power, that means human ability, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Oh, how we need the power of God in this hour to do what God has called us to do. There can be no meaningful evangelism, no real revival, no genuine discipleship. There can be no lasting missionary work without the power of God. There's another key word here, and it's the word witnesses tonight. If you'll mark your Bible, that key word witnesses is a word that really simply means that they, they, they shared what they had experienced. They were sharing what they had experienced in their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. This power was given so they could babble in tongues, right? No. It was given so they could hold healing meetings. No, it was given so that they could march out of the church in Jerusalem and share what Jesus Christ had done for them. Amen. Witness back in those days, you think about first century Christianity and, uh, and the sacrifice, the sacrifice that they put forth to get the word out that there was a Jesus that saves but there's a little word in this passage, and if we're not careful tonight, we'll miss it. And, uh, and, and you've probably heard hundreds of messages on Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but I, I like to call that little word both in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I like to call that word the lost word in missions tonight. The little word both. The, the Lord was not giving the church a step-by-step -step plan. He, he was not saying, now, church, when you, when you go forth here, you go to Jerusalem and reach everybody in Jerusalem, and when you get everybody that you can reach in Jerusalem reached, then you, you branch out and you go down the road to Judea. No, no, it was a simultaneous plan all across America tonight. We have so many great churches tonight that are involved in faith promise giving and uh, giving to missions and so forth. But there's, there's always been something that's bothered me in this matter of, of uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Across our land tonight, there are many churches involved in missions. But so many churches tonight are devoting 90%, 95%, 98% of their mission budget completely to foreign missions. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I am all for foreign missions tonight. I, I, am, all, I am part of a, a mission agency that has missionaries all over the world. I am, I am not saying I'm not for that, but, but ladies and gentlemen, this is a beautiful building tonight, and, and let me just illustrate it if I can. Up above the ceiling tile would probably be uh, ceiling joists, and those ceiling joists tonight are they're trusses, actually, and they're holding up the roof. And all of that weight from the trusses and the roof up there and the shingles and everything and the plywood, all of that weight, or if it's steel, I don't know for sure, but all that weight is being transferred to these walls. And these walls, of course, have studs in them, and they're, they're holding the weight, but all of the weight from the roof and all of the weight from the walls ends up really on the foundation. Now, I know enough about construction to know this. If you have a faulty foundation, you're going to have trouble with your walls. You're going to have trouble with your roof. Now, let me, let me just bring this all into perspective here. Tonight, what we must do in America in this hour, we've got to shore up our foundation at home or we'll not be able to send the next generation of missionaries. Mission budgets tonight are filled and getting full. And, and, uh, and you know, this has been going on for years and years and years and years. And, and so we've got to get serious about planting churches and, and, and reaching our homeland with the gospel. But also, I believe if God tarries and if the Lord tarries, He's going to call the next generation of missionaries and the next generation. And we must have the funding to send them. So let's reach our hometowns, but let's not forget about the towns down the road in America that have never had a gospel-preaching church. Let's not only reach our Jerusalem and Judea, but let's reach the Samaritans who are coming in here to our doorsteps all across America. I mean, the world is coming to America. We have a, a missionary tonight. His name is Jorge Noriega. He is out in Las Vegas, Nevada. Jorge Noriega, actually his parents were born in Cuba. And Jorge was born in America. They migrated to America. And, and Jorge was born in America. He served in the military. And when he got out of the military, he, he had a tremendous burden to go back and reach the Cuban people. He tried to get to Cuba four times, and the government turned him down every time. And so he was out in Las Vegas, Nevada. He was, he was visiting, I think it was for Gateway Baptist Church out there, knocking doors, just trying to help the pastor and, and just do door, doing door, door canvassing and so forth. And, and he knocked on the door of a Cuban man. And the Cuban man said this. He said, well, he said, we have a Bible study here. He said, every Wednesday night we have about 25 or 30 Cuban people. You're welcome to come and lead the Bible study. Well, he came that following Wednesday night, and he led the Bible study. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon they started a small church going there in that community, in that home. And, and uh, they started meeting in the garage until they got to about 65, 70 people, and the neighbors complained. And, and they had to move and find another place to meet. Uh, tonight, Jorge Noriega is, is on his fourth church plant in inner city Las Vegas. And he has trained the men that have taken those churches. He has sat at his kitchen table. He has sat at his office in his church. And he has trained the men that, I mean, it's a foreign mission pattern, but it works. It can work in America tonight. It can work here in the USA. It's interesting, the first man that, that uh, he trained, his name was Elvis. <laughs> Elvis is alive and well, and he's preaching the gospel in Las Vegas. <laughs> Elvis walked in the door from San Salvador. He, he had come to church on a dare by his girlfriend. His girlfriend had dared him to come. 
She dared him to come several Sundays in a row. Finally, he said, I'll come. And he came, and Elvis heard the gospel. And about four weeks later, Elvis got saved. I mean, came in the first door, came in the first night with chains and tattoos. But Elvis is preaching the gospel and leading that church. And, and uh, Jorge called me. He said, look, we're going to start another church. Would you come out here and help us find a building? And we looked for buildings, and we looked for different places where they could start meeting. And, and finally, we found these upscale warehouses where they've landscaped the warehouse, and they've got nice lighting. And actually, out in Las Vegas, they overbuilt. They overbuilt warehouse space and so now he's starting his churches on the bus line because of the Hispanic people and frankly north of Interstate 15 probably about 95% of the people are Hispanic and he is planting churches and he's training the nationals to take them those that has, have come through the doors of his church and it's a pattern that can be duplicated again and again and again and again a balanced Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. As we travel America, it's interesting. You can sometimes drive for hours and never run into what you guys enjoy here every, every week. I mean, uh, we met a lady in Northern California who's driving, good grief, she's driving over 200 miles <laughs> every Sunday to go to church. Uh, you go to the Northwest, and honestly, uh, I mean, there's just, I mean, you could drive a long distance before you run into, before you run into a church like this one. And I was thinking about the Phoenix Valley, four and a half million people. I was out there not too long ago. Man, the, I'll tell you what, the Mormons are putting up meeting places just like McDonald's franchises about every four or five miles, another meeting place, another meeting place, another meeting place. You go to the metropolitan cities of America, and what do you see? You see Muslim mosques and Hindu temples. And excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, but they have nothing coming down from the God of lights above. We have the truth of the Word of God. Amen? And just a handful of independent Baptist churches in many areas. We're looking at a plan tonight that God has given His church here in the book of Acts. And somehow, some way, tonight, I, I think what's happened over the years is we've done a good job in reaching our communities and we've done a good job in trying to reach our hometowns and where we've been located, our Jerusalem. And, and we've done a good job in trying to pray for and send missionaries worldwide. But oh, tonight, Judea and Samaria need to be reached. And the only way I know how to do that is through church planting. It's the marching orders for the church. Well, what happens? The command was given. Did they obey the command, Brother Bob? Well, yes and no. They tarried in Jerusalem. Now, they were supposed to tarry. But you know what happens in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is stoned. By the time you get to Acts chapter 8, let's look at it quickly. Acts chapter 8 tonight, verse 1. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Whose death? The death of Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, let's look at that word, they. And who were they Well, they were the members of the church at Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting? The first missionaries in the New Testament were really the members of the church at Jerusalem. The persecution took place. And so what did they do? They scattered. Look at verse 4 in chapter 8. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. 
Now, in the original, if you do a word study on that word preaching, it doesn't necessarily say that, it doesn't mean they all had a pulpit or they all had a, a Bible study class, but they all knew what Jesus Christ had done for them. And they were willing to share what Jesus Christ had done for them. And, and they began to do God's work God's way. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And because they were doing God's work God's way, what happened? Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31, real quickly here. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. This is the first time that you'll ever see the word churches, plural, in the New Testament. Up until this time, there's only been one church. Where? The church of Jerusalem. But look at verse 31. Then had the churches, plural, rest, which means the persecution stopped, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and they were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. It's a beautiful picture tonight. You say, yeah, but they were forced out of Jerusalem and the persecution forced them out. But nevertheless... They were, they were on the move, and they were doing what, what had been commanded way back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It's a beautiful picture tonight of God's people doing God's work God's way. You know, I, I'm convinced tonight that we have the manpower in our churches tonight in America to start hundreds and hundreds of new churches. The statistics tonight that David gave are spot on. The Independent Baptist Movement plants about 120 to 130 new churches per year. That sounds good until you think of our population. And we need to be planting 500 new churches per year. And because we're independent tonight, we don't know how many closures we've got going on. So are we gaining? Are we losing? Are we holding our own? That's really the elephant in the room tonight. I get calls every day at Baptist International Missions or my cell phone rings and there's a church that's in trouble and they're in decline. We have over 70 churches right now on a list where those folks need a pastor to come and take the small group of people and take the church and pastor the church, or that church will eventually close. Now, here's the thing tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We not only need to plant hundreds of new churches in America and reseed America. I drive through the United States of America, and where there used to be solid churches, sometimes they're not there anymore. Or if they are there, they've changed their music. Or they've changed their preaching. Or they're using Philistine methods. And so tonight, I'm just simply saying, and I'm not talking about splitting congregations in two and, and taking half the church down the road and, and saying, okay, now you folks go down here and help the new church planter. But I, but I am talking about increasing our missionary force by increasing our missionary source. And church planting, church planting needs to be our responsibility. It's the most effective strategy for reaching people. We can reach America through the starting of hundreds of new churches. It's all about reproducing ourselves again and again and again. I was with a church planter just a couple of weeks ago in Miami, Florida, in, in the state here, and Luis Brasino has started in, in North Miami, and, and he grew up there, and he's gone home to plant a church there. And, but you know what? Luis is meeting in a motel meeting room. It's a temporary facility. He's been there over a year and a half now, but he has a plan to reproduce his church. 
we sat down at the table and he said, now, here's what we're going to do, Brother Bob. And he had a little thing drawn up there about how he was going to reproduce the church and how he was going to possibly get a man in there to take the church he had started. And, and boy, he got all excited about it. I'll tell you what, we just need to get excited about that, ladies and gentlemen. There's opportunities all over America. Richard Jacob on the north side of Nashville with BIMI, he, he already, he's been talking my arm off about reproducing his church already. And he's meeting in a motel meeting room and he's got a small cluster of people coming and, and they've, been trying, they've been trying to navigate through this COVID thing like David has and Terry and, and been trying to keep their church going and so forth. But, but he has a plan. And all I'm saying tonight is we can multiply our missionary force by increasing our missionary source. Years ago, I struck up a friendship with a pastor near St. Louis, Missouri. I called him on the phone for a meeting one day, and he said, uh, he said, well, Brother Bob, he said, listen, he said, I'd like to meet you and talk with you. And so eventually we met up and, and struck up a friendship. He said, you know, Brother Bob, he said, when I first came out of Bible college, he said, I went out to pastor, and he said, I thought I was going to have a church of 500 people. He said, I've never pastored 500 people. He said, I've never pastored over 150 people. He said, but we found out something. We found out we can plant churches. And he said, by planting churches, we, we're going to reach thousands. He had a simple plan. I, I wondered where his plan came, with, came from. He shared it with me. He, it, was, it was actually taken from the 1700s, the mid-1700s. As the separatist revival took place in North Carolina in the mid-1700s, a preacher by the name of Shubal Stearns trained and ordained 17 pastors and sent them out to plant churches. And in one generation, you can trace nearly 500 churches from the Sandy Creek Church and from a, two generations, nearly 1,000 church starts. But he had a phrase, and the phrase was, we're going to go over the next hill and sit as a church. And what he meant by that way back in the 1700s was what they were going to, they were going to clear the calendar they were going to give birth to a new church, and that's what they were going to focus on. And part of their people were going to go over and help that man get started. They weren't going to stay there, but they will eventually come back to the home church, and then they'll go help the next man get started. They said, we're going to go over the next hill and sit as a church. And that pastor in St. Louis, when he showed me what he had mapped out, it was a pretty simple plan. Every year what they would do is they would begin to pray, Lord, where would you like us to plant a church? And they'd begin to pray, and he'd pray, and the deacons would pray. And then in the spring of each year, what they would do is they would look for a needy town within driving distance of the home church. And, and he'd come back, and his deacons and, and, uh, and the pastor, they would meet, and they would pray, and they would ask the people to pray, and they would determine where that next church was going to be. And then he'd put up sign-up sheets in the back of the auditorium, and the sign-up sheets would be, uh, pray for a church planter, and they'd be praying. And, and by the way, the five churches that they planted, four of their men came right out of the church that he was pastoring. But nevertheless, they'd pray for church planters. And then the next list he had in the back would be a, a list for people to actually go over to the church plant and help the church planter with a nursery or with a primary class or maybe with a... a, a a children's church and that type of thing. Another list was, was on the back table. It was a simple plan. It was actually adapted actually from Stern's plan back in the 1700s. But another list was a list for buying groceries for the church planter. It was so simplistic, but it worked. If you walked into his church, 
If you walked into his church during those days where they were planting churches, he's in heaven now, and you asked his people, folks, are you church planters? They'd all say, yes, we are. Because they, they were all involved in some way, shape, or form. Some were involved in cooking meals so the people could go out and canvas. Some were involved in taking care of children so the young couples could go and, and help distribute literature. Some were involved in, uh, in uh, just uh, basically going down to the new church plant. You know, if you walked into his church and said, Church, are you church planters? They'd all say, Yeah, we are. We've all been involved. Well, let me go over to Acts chapter 11. We'll wrap this up tonight. You say, well, Brother Bob, how does, this all, how does this all come into play when you think about missions worldwide? We can increase our missionary force worldwide by increasing our missionary source. We must, we have to do that tonight. We must do that in this hour. In Acts chapter 11, it's interesting how these folks from Jerusalem, now they're 300 miles. They're 300 miles from Jerusalem. And in verse number 19 of Acts chapter 11, the Bible says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word. What about Antioch? Antioch, second largest city in the known world at that time. Wicked. They got to Antioch. And I want you to notice that little word traveled in, in verse number 19 of Acts chapter 11. You see, up until that time, the Holy Spirit describes their activity as being scattered. Scattered is just simply what? Going hither and yon. Doing what they can, where they can, just kind of going where you can to get the job done. But, but now I notice something in verse 19. They are traveling. They are going on purpose they, they are looking for communities, I believe, that need, desperately need the gospel. Let's talk about traveling a minute. You got here tonight. You, you left home. You took a certain route. You had to take a certain route to get here. You, you just didn't get on a street and say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, take a street, here I go. Huh? No, no, you had to get here on purpose. They're traveling now on purpose. And I want you to see here in this passage they get to Antioch, and notice what happens in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned on to the Lord. Now notice verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. What about Barnabas? Look at verse 24. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. It's a beautiful picture when you think about it. Tidings of the fact that people were getting saved over at Antioch came to the church at Jerusalem. I don't know how they received tidings. Maybe a messenger came through, but someone said, Hey, do you know what's happening over at Antioch? No, what? Folks are getting saved over there. And the folks at Jerusalem realized that saved people need a good pastor. Saved people do need a good pastor. They thought, you know what, they need a church. And so they looked around the congregation. Barnabas, would you, would you pray? He was a good man. Would you pray about going? And, and, and the Bible says that he came. And notice what happened here. In verse 23, when he came, and he saw what? The grace of God. What, what did he see, Brother Bob? Well, he, he saw all those saved people. That's a demonstration of the... Hey, I'm looking out here tonight. This is a demonstration of the grace of God tonight. You... you 
Only by God's grace you sit here saved tonight, right? Only by God's grace your wife is saved or your family is saved. And, and immediately he sets in to disciple these dear people. And it must have been a big job because he had to go get it some help. But it's a, it's a picture here in, in, in chapter 11. It's a picture of a church actually reproducing itself, sending out a man to go and preach the gospel and, and win those people, disciple those people, and establish a church. Can I share with you tonight the grace of God in Bob Larson's life? Barnabas came and saw the grace of God. I stand here saved tonight and on my way to heaven because a man 56 years of age walked an aisle on a Sunday night in a church in the state of Wisconsin and said, I'm going north of Milwaukee to plant an independent Baptist church. Now, this man had been in the ministry earlier in life, but he had kind of been hurt in the ministry, and he was out of the ministry, but his pastor was talking about the fact, he was preaching about the fact that, hey, we, needed to, we need to go north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and plant churches. There's not a church from Milwaukee all the way to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Someone needs to go, and one night that man walked the aisle, 56 years of age, and came to my town. I was living north of Milwaukee. I was working for a Milwaukee radio station. I was unsaved. I was 27 years old. I had just been married. I'd met my wife in that town. I didn't want to live in Milwaukee. Anyone from Milwaukee? Oh, good, I can. Are you from Milwaukee? Testify to this, brother. Milwaukee has an odor. <laughs> it's because of all those stinking breweries. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I didn't want to live in that, so I decided I'm going upwind, amen? And I lived in a town north of Milwaukee. But this is the grace of God, ladies and gentlemen. You say, well, prove you were in radio. Okay, I will. You ready? <clears throat> Tonight's forecast, mainly dark, followed by light. No. <laughs> I'd commute back and forth to work. But here's the grace of God. That church planter came to my town. And one day, he knocked on my mother-in-law's door. Now, my mother-in-law had lots of religion, but she didn't know Jesus. By the way, mankind has dreamed up 700 ways to get to heaven. Still only one tonight. Jesus said, I am the way. She had all this religion, but she didn't have Jesus. That church planter knocked on her door with one of the men of the church plant, and they, they gave her a bunch of gospel literature, and she read, she read that gospel literature probably for a couple of months. But on a Sunday morning, a couple of months later, my mother-in-law got up, went down to that new church plant in a storefront building, and that's the Sunday my mother-in-law came home, a saved lady. The church planter's wife took her aside and asked her if she knew she was saved, and she said, no, but I've been reading this material that your pastor, your husband left, and I need to do something, and she got saved. About a year later, about a year later, my father-in-law got up on a Sunday morning. Now, she had been lovingly witnessing to my father-in-law. She'd been sharing what she had been learning down at that new church. She wasn't trying to, you know, shove it down his throat, but she was trying to share with him what she was learning. And about a year later, she got up on a Sunday, or he got up on a Sunday morning, actually ahead of her, put the coffee on, was dressed. She said, what are you doing? 
He said, I'm going to go down to that new church with you today. And that's the Sunday my father-in-law came home and saved man. Then they started coming to our house on a more regular basis. And I'd look out the window and I'd see him drive in some Thursday night or maybe it was Saturday morning and I'd see him drive in and I could see my mother-in-law had her Bible as she was walking to the house and I'd try and sneak away, you know. But she'd come to the door and she'd say, Bob, Dad just wants to read a verse of Scripture with you and have prayer with you. Is that okay? Sure, come on in. But verse by verse by verse, they were sharing the gospel with us. In the spring of that year, and I didn't realize it, but my mother-in-law was witnessing to my wife on a regular basis, Judy, who's now in heaven. On a Sunday morning in the spring of that year, I woke up and my wife was dressed and my four-year-old daughter was dressed. We had a four-year-old and I opened one eye. I thought Sunday mornings were made for sleeping, you know. And I looked over and I said, what are you doing? And, and my, my wife said, well, we thought we'd go down to that new church with mom and dad today. And that's the Sunday my wife came home a saved lady. And boy, did things change at our house. Wow. I'd come home, my wife would be reading the Bible, and she'd say, Bob, did you know the Bible? And she'd share a principle with me, and I'd look at it and say, oh, yeah, I know that. Liar, I didn't know anything. A week before Father's Day, 1978, <laughs> when I mentioned that year the other day to one of the grandkids, the grand <laughs> grandson looked at me and said, do they have cars back then? Nineteen seventy-eight, week before Father's Day, my daughter comes home from Sunday school and church with my wife. They come in the house. My four-year-old daughter runs up to me, and I pick her up, and she said, Daddy, will you come to Sunday school with me next Sunday in church? My teacher has a gift for all the boys and girls who bring their dads next Sunday. It's Father's Day. How are you supposed to say no to that? First time I ever walked into church, like Central Baptist Church, was Father's Day, 1978. Now, it was a storefront building, and they had pews, but they had a real short pew in the back. Nobody told me that was the usher's pew. I thought, there's my spot. So I sat down. As soon as I sat down, man, two guys in suits right beside me. Boom, boom. Who are these guys, you know? One of those guys, his name was Richard, he stuck out his hand. He said, man, he said, I'm so glad you're here today. You're, you're Becky's dad, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. Oh, man, she looks just like you, you know. Thank you, thank you. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do here. And he gave me a little play-by-play. -play. He said, we're going to have a Bible study. I said, oh. And he shoved a Bible study book in my <laughs> lap, you know. And, uh, and then he said, then we're going to have a service. And I thought, what's a service, you know. But that morning, that pastor got up during the morning service, and he preached on how to have a Christian home. And how to raise kids according to the scripture. And man, I needed some help. I had this little four-year-old daughter. And so I started, honestly, Pastor, I started filing some of those things in the back of my mind. You know, hey, I can do that. I can do that. Well, I missed the gospel that Sunday, okay? It just, I didn't, I didn't get it. And, uh, but I, I went home and I started applying. I started applying some of these biblical principles that he's teaching about child rearing. And they're working. Can I tell you tonight, we have a working book, if we'll apply it. 
I thought, I'm going back to hear more. And about four weeks later, on a Sunday night, I'm sitting down. You know, I've kind of moved forward now. You know, I'm moving forward. And all of a sudden, he's preaching from John chapter th 3. The story of Nicodemus. And honestly, every time he, his finger comes across that pulpit saying, You need Jesus, I think to myself, Yes, I do. I was lost. Remember that day that the Holy Spirit showed you you were lost? Sobering thing, isn't it? I did a dumb thing. I walked out of that service that night, unsaved. Got in my car, tried to rev up the preaching, or rev up the engine, excuse me, to drown out the preaching. Got home that night, couldn't sleep. Oh, I just kept hearing that over and over. Ye must be born again. I got up in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. My wife said, what are you doing up so early? I said, well, I got a lot of preparation before I go on the air at 6. I'm going down to the radio station. I went in that radio station at 4.30 in the morning. Got in the back in the sales offices. And I tried to bargain with God. I said, God, I can't get saved. You don't know all the terrible things I've done. Then I realized he probably did, did know every single thing. The light was on from the hallway there, and I finally knelt by the chair, and I, I just said, and I was perfectly honest. I said, Lord, I, I don't even know what being a Christian is, but I know two things. Number one, I know your word says I'm lost. And I know your word says that you want to save me. So right here and now, as best I know how, I want to trust you as my Savior to forgive me of my sin. And you know what? Jesus did what he promised he'd do. And the rest is history. I got called to preach several years later. Was trained, was a youth pastor for six years. Had the great privilege of pastoring and planting churches for 17 years. I got together with some of our grandkids over the holiday. I was kind of just sitting watching them. Maybe you've done this as a grandparent or maybe a parent. But I was sitting watching them and I thought to myself, well, they have a... If America keeps going the way she's going, will they have an opportunity to sit in a church where, where the pastor opens the scriptures and regularly shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought to myself, are they going to have an opportunity when they get older, depending on where they're living in America, are they going to have an opportunity for a pastor uh, to be under the preaching of a pastor and be in a good church that loves missionaries and supports missions and understands what worldwide evangelization is all about? I thought to myself, are they going to have an opportunity to hear what marriage is really like according, or what it really is according to the Scriptures? Are they going to have an opportunity to be in a church where they can be involved and, and they can learn how to win souls? And I began to think about all that. Maybe you've thought about that. When I was six years old, I stood in a cemetery and my brother and sister and I, a few relatives, we buried my mom. She took her own life. A year later in that same cemetery, my brother and sister and I stood there with a few relatives and we buried my dad. He died a drunkard's death. And us three kids, my brother and sister and I, we became orphans. 
we had an aunt and uncle that had a dairy farm in northern Minnesota. So they said, hey, those kids can come and live with us. Now, they had three boys of their own. So we went to live on a dairy farm. Now, I found out something about dairy cattle. Dairy cows do not give milk. You've got to take it from them twice a day. <laughs> Amen. I found out about a thing called work. My aunt and uncle were good people. They took us to a church. They rarely opened the scriptures. At age 15 or 16, I looked around and people looked so miserable. I said, I'm not coming back. I told my aunt and uncle, I'm not coming back. They said, you're not coming back. I said, no, I'm not coming back. And it wasn't until I walked in the door of that church plant north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that I realized that there was a Jesus Christ who loved Bob Larson. All across the state of Florida tonight, all across the southeast, all across the United States, around the world, there are millions and millions of Bob Larsons. They're sitting in small towns. They're sitting in metropolitan cities. They're sitting in rural areas. And my question for you tonight, and for me tonight, is who's going to love them if we don't love them? Who's going to reach them if we don't reach them? Who's going to win them if we don't win them? Who's going to care if we don't care? It all comes back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost.